RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Our baby Gunner Kennels. Man, one of the things that I love about Gunner Kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies. Old Buck, he hangs out in a gunner kennel when he goes to and fro. And in his, we've got the ortho pad. He's got the old joints. And and even if your dog's not old like Buck, you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit. So the ortho pad, super huge. If you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit, maybe chew a little bit, that performance pad is going to be clutch as well. So check it out. It's the full kit brought to you by Gunner Kennels, always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe. Sliding the dms if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner kennel have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog maybe you think your dog's too soft maybe you're too nervous to screw quote unquote screw your dog up let me help you i built a start to finish course with different dogs different breeds and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy jump in links in the description we'd be happy to help you let's go let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. I'm excited for this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about things that I love, a little bit of grouse hunting, Labrador retrievers. But first, a quick word from our sponsors, and the word is from me. So, hey, go figure. Uh, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, you guys know that they provide the fuel for our dogs to kennel. Kevin's dogs at his house, the old dog, old buck. Um, Yukonuba provides nutrition for the athlete. So our dogs are athletes. They work super hard. They need to be replenished by a food that is nutritious, healthy, and gives them everything they need so that tomorrow when we go out and grind it out, they're ready. So if you're interested, check it out. Puppy blend, adult blend, 30-20. They've got a senior blend. So take a look at your dog and what works for them. Check out Yukonuba. Hey, baby, what can Yukonuba do for you? Next up is Gunner Kennels, man's best kennel. You know all about us with the unspoken bond and the relationship we share with our dogs, the memories we make, training, hunting, in the home. Man, these dogs are more to us like family, emotionally and financially, that we've got to give them the best. So, hey. Man's Best Kennel. Check out Gunner Kennels. If you're interested, maybe shoot me and Kevin a little DM. Slide on in, baby. Gunner Kennels. Next up, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They're the company that hosts us along with a boatload of other fishing, hunting, outdoor-related podcasts and social media platforms. So if you're interested, 
Waypoint Outdoor Collective. And last up, I want to give you a little shout out to the Smokin' Smokers Pellet Grills, Traeger Grills. Hey, we met these guys at SHOT Show. I had a blast with them. They are class acts. They've got top-of-the-line gear, and they are now going to be a part of the old Lone D. So big shout-out to Traeger Grills. Thank you for believing in us. Thank you for believing in our community. And there's a lot more cool stuff coming up from Traeger. So, guys, without further ado, I want to give you a, a new introduction. Again, Grouse Guy, Lab Guy, Fritz Heller. Fritz, awesome to have you on our show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am. Uh, I live in the uh, northwest corner of the lower peninsula of Michigan. Uh, I am married with an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. I coach a travel hockey team. We just lost in overtime in districts uh, semifinals on Sunday. Not real happy about that. Still questioning what I could have done different. Uh, where I live right now, there's about three feet of snow on the ground, and I'm staring at a backyard ice rink. Uh, for work, uh, I own and operate a hotel management company, so I'm an equity holder in a number of Marriott franchises. And then I own the company that manages them on behalf of the ownership group. My wife's a family practice doc. And uh, we've got, uh, let's see, I have four Labrador retrievers. One that just turned 15. Holy cow. Yeah, and it's amazing. She's still like, uh, she can still jump up on my bed. Um, and then I have her daughter who, t- who turns nine in, in May. And her name is May. I'm not allowed to pick dog names in my relationship. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Do you get to pick the kids' names? Uh, I had a little bit of input on that. but And then uh, I've got a uh, five-year-old American Cocker Spaniel named Pippa. Again, not a name I picked. And then a a four-year-old Labrador named Boots. And then I also, during hunting season, uh, get my dad's dog. His name's Wolf. And uh, that's my dog, May's sister. Uh, And I I spend, uh, I'm down to about 35 days a year of grouse hunting. Um, Back in my heyday prior to children, I was pushing 60 to 75 days a season, depending on snow. Jesus. Situation. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a grouse hunter through and through. I also enjoy doing, a lot of steelhead fishing. Do I'm, you? I'm fortunate. Yes. There you go. Yes. I'm hoping to yeah, get I out prob- this weekend. I probably get, you know, again, now that I coach hockey and my kids are just this age, I probably steelhead fish 60 days a year, 70 days a year, maybe. And then I duck hunt uh, maybe six to 12 days a year, but I am not a great duck hunter. Yeah, me neither. Don't all. worry about it. <laughs> um what but you so, didn't mention your oldest dog's name what's your oldest dog's name my oldest dog's name is bella nice i used to have a bella like, too. like every every family that's ever owned a, a labrador retriever in this world it's true i had an so, old english bulldog named bella though i'll bet you that dog bob has kevin that dog has 3500 plus rough grouse contacts in her career you're kidding. 
No, not to mention, you know, back then I was, we'd go to North Dakota for a week or, I, you know, I've killed birds over that dog in North Dakota, Kansas, Iowa, South Dakota, Michigan, and Minnesota. So you're everywhere. I, I, I am everywhere. I, I hunt, I hunt uh, a fair amount in the northern lower peninsula, the western UP, and then all over Minnesota for a week every season. Not a bad life. And, 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 no, and by hunts, I mean some days my hunts, you know, close to home I have fared a good hunting. Some years excellent depending on the hatch. But, you know, some of those are like a two-hour day, right, where I can run each dog for 40 minutes, and, and that's the window I got that day. And then I go home and coach and do emails until 10 p.m. so I can hunt the next day. Yeah. Well, you I know. mean, I guess it's better than not going out. It is. Yeah, I take every Friday off during the hunting season and, and try and either hunt or fish or sometimes both. That's a man day right there. Yeah. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than a walk on a steelhead stream in the morning and then a big, huge breakfast and then, you know, four hours of thickets in the afternoon. Yeah, that's pretty good. So uh, talk to me about, uh, well, I do want to get into your dogs and stuff too, but uh, Grouse Commander. How did that get started? Okay. Um, what kind of the whole st- yeah? Just the, go ahead. Yeah, the whole the whole story behind that is so I, I hunt a lot with my little brother Rick. He lives three miles from me, and uh, we've bred a few dogs together and and trained together, and and we do everything together. I mean, he works for me. We play beer league hockey together, and uh, play, and so it. And then we have two buddies, Brad and Eddie. And a long time ago, uh, we used to have what we called, uh, we had a grouse camp every season where we would essentially guide a bunch of our buddies from college and high school and and stuff. And then the following weekend, we always called it killers weekend because (laughs) we were, we, we got to hunt again and not guide. Yeah. And killers weekend one year, Brad looked at me and goes, uh, do you remember the last time you missed Fritz? And I said, uh, I don't Brad. This was like, you know, I think we started Thursday afternoon or something. I said, I don't, I don't remember the last time I missed Brad. Why? And he goes, well, I've got you 11 up and 11 down. So I killed 11, that 11 straight that I'd shot at. And he wrote, and that was back when, uh, my brother and him were in college working at a Gander mountain. So this was a while ago, guys. And, uh, they, they rode in the dust on the back of my topper grouse commander because they were watching the duck. The duck commander was playing on loop at the Gander mountain. They worked at in college nonstop. Yeah. And then our buddy, Eddie, who's a Marine Corps veteran and a, a veteran of the, of the, uh, war on terror, he put together the grouse commander thing um, and he kind of runs the whole situation and it was just more or less, it's a way for us. Eddie created some t-shirts and some swag and we raise a little bit of money and make sure that we give it back. We typically donate back to conservation organization uh, being the rough grouse society, but even, even further than that, we donate to veterans hunts and youth, youth uh, recruitment opportunities uh, across the state of michigan that's awesome good for you yeah yeah 
and and we were at a crossroads where you know the number one rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club and and part of the problem with grouse hunting is we're all so secretive and protective because 95 percent of it and for me a hundred percent of it really takes place on public lands and uh we were we were starting to get a fair amount of attention and we kind of had to make a decision whether we were going to embrace it and try and help the sport grow and and how do we get the message out that we want in the growing social media and message board areas or we were going to run and hide and we kind of made the decision to go ahead and, and do grouse commander and try and share some stuff and keep it organized and and it's been fun. It's, it's, you know, it's a little more work than I want. I started GoPro and hunts and stuff, and I just don't have time to edit and do that anymore. And I just kind of grew out of it. I mean, what's really, really awesome is I have, I have, you know, the last grouse I ever killed over some of my dogs on video. Um, yeah, that's it, pretty it unique. I, I guess I don't know too many people who are able to say that. That's for sure. Yeah, I try and whenever that happens, I try and make sure I'm wearing that stupid GoPro. Yeah. Um, when I think it might be the last opportunity. Um, you know. Fritz, let me jump in here for a second. Um, what I want to just have you explain a little bit is that you do grouse hunting a little differently than most, and that is you hunt grouse over your labs. Can you explain? maybe the difference in doing it with a lab or a flushing breed over a pointer? Sure. And a little backstory is, um, and I said this in the project Upland film, so excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but for those that have or haven't seen it, I grew up in a household with Labradors. My, my father was a Southern Michigan pheasant hunter through the seventies and early eighties. And then I became a Southern Michigan pheasant hunter uh also and and then i moved up north i wanted to move up north so i could steelhead fish and uh and our pheasant population was dwindling so i took up grouse hunting the season was longer and when i first moved up north in my what i call my first full season i i was fortunate to hunt with a lot of guys with pointing dogs i was convinced you had to have a pointing dog to hunt grouse effectively right like they were like this unkillable mythical bird and sure, you knocked one down occasionally, and that worked great. But when I started hunting with those guys, I started realizing I'm not – my flush rates, and I'm kind of a newbie at this, are no different than some of these seasoned guys with these pointing breeds. And they just fit my style. I walk pretty fast. I'm physically fit and very active in my in my personal life, and I just love to go. And, and, and I started to really see some advantages to the – um, to the flushing breeds and, and specifically, you know, labs are tough. They don't get hurt. They're, they're a toolbox, not a tool. And my dogs are 45 to 52 pounds right in that range. And I just started honing my craft and I did it with boot leather. I, you know, I, my wife was in medical school at the time and then a residency. We didn't have any kids. I had a job, not a career. So in my mid, in my early mid twenties, late twenties, I had an opportunity to spend, I mean, I was in the woods 150 days a year. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of boot leather. Trying to figure out how to get good at this. 
you know, and you're, and, it, and you're taking your dogs out of season and are you flushing, are you teaching them with grouse basically? I am. Yes. I mean, I do a, I do a variety of things, but the, the biggest difference to back to the original question is you need to take flushing dogs to grouse and you hope pointing dogs pull you to them. I can, I can, I can have the best grouse dog in the world. If I don't know where to park, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, if, if I don't put, if I don't put the dog in the best available cover for the time of the year and the conditions, then it, it doesn't matter what kind of dog you have. You're not going to find a lot of birds. And so I started to really learn and hone and hone and hone as to what's best. And if you know where they live, there's real advantages to a flushing dog, a flushing retriever. And if you know where they live and what time of the year they live there and why, then it's not hard to go run up, you know, four or five, six birds an hour for a season average. So can you describe and teach a little bit about what you're looking for in certain times of year? I can. So uh, just for, for the sake of hunting and not talking about, you know, summer brood rearing areas and, and or winter winter yards. I think there's five seasons within a grouse season in the Great Lakes. I think there's early season, which is that miserable, wet, buggy, thick September. And then I think there is what we call the shuffle, which is where the birds start breaking up out of broods. And then there's what I call leaf drop, which is when the birds get really skittish. And then there's bare November, which is the most glorious time of the year. And then there's the late season, which is anything I call, you know, when you could have snow on the ground. And so I start looking at different covers, different times of the year based on what my summer scouting has told me, what the hatch conditions are, what the weather is. So I'm looking to put my, um, I'm a firm believer that 80% of the grouse live in 20% of the cover. So I'm looking to put my bird, my dogs in that 20% or that 20% of cover and have them there all the time. And so that might mean in the morning I'm hunting uh, uh, the edge where an alder run meets an aspen thicket or an ironwood uh, patch of ironwood, or I'm hunting where a young beech forest meets you know, some kind of non-saw habitat, non-saw habitat being uh, brushy, lowland stem density that's not necessarily created by a forest uh, forest disturbance or logging. And my dogs stay there or I'm hunting a food trap, you know, which is, okay, it's two hours before dark. I know the birds are going to go feed. And so where are these food areas? How do we attack them? how do I put myself on the escape route and let the dog do the work and move birds to me? Uh, So I'm looking for the micro within the macro. If you have an 80 acre Aspen cut, I believe, I believe 80% of the birds in that cut are going to be in 20% of that habitat. And most commonly it's on an edge in Minnesota. It's all inside edges in Michigan. It's all outside edges. 
Why hmm. do you think that it's, is? I have no idea. Um, in Michigan, you know, I find a lot of birds between mature hardwoods and, say, I'll just say stem density. Stem density could be aspen. It could be alder. It could be uh, lowland brush, honeysuckle. It could be any myriad of things, you know, beech, oak whips. And then our birds in Michigan fly, at least in the lower peninsula, the further north and west you go, the more they start to live on the inside edge. But our birds then fly, their escape route is into the big woods. Where in Minnesota, it took us a while to learn this. And Minnesota is the greatest grouse hunting in the world. I mean, it's incredible. My flush rates there per hour are the same as they are here. And I'm hunting a cover I've never hunted before there almost all the time. And they're all on the inside edge in Minnesota. I think the big difference is Michigan has more pine trees. We have more water. We have more alder. Where Minnesota, kind of in the range, a lot of it, at least where we hunt, is one giant aspen flat. And so you might have an 80-acre aspen flat, and if it's got 20% spruce in it, you're in heaven. But if there's the old skitter road that runs through it, that's where the birds are. And a lot of times there's clover growing on that skitter road. And, and they're always within 40 yards of that skitter road. Sure, you find some out in the middle, but maybe there's a grass lake out there. So we now go and we work our way around that grass lake. But, but I'm trying to, I live and die on the edge of everything. Interesting. Tell me about working your dogs to put, put them in a successful position for flushing them within range. Well, I'm a little bit different in this regard. So do you want me to talk about how I develop a dog to do that or just let's take a four-year-old dog, for example? Well, I think it'd be interesting no. to learn both, really. Yeah, go about go about teaching it is how I would okay. do it. Sure. Okay, so so I learned a ton from the pointing dog guys. So I want an independent dog that really learns to use its nose. And so I do all the same stuff the retriever guys do to start. And then about four or five months old, dragging on a 30-foot check cord, we start walking through mature forests in the woods, right? And, and we just start going for walks. And I keep my mouth shut i want that dog to just start using its nose there's no rules and there's really no rules for depending on the age of the dog through its first season even i'm trying to encourage it to be exploratory and independent and as that dog continues to mature sometimes there's some quail in those big woods sometimes there's a pigeon and i probably my dogs when they're young they might see three to four dozen ten birds before you know in in the first 18 months of their life um because i i i know where grouse live certain times of the year and if i can build some search and i can get them bold and confident i can start to take them where eventually they're just going to run over one they might not smell it the first time or realize it well they're just going to bump into some um and then i keep i keep progressively having that dog get bolder and bolder and more confident. And I keep getting younger and younger in age class of forest 
So it's gradually, I'm gradually trying to bring that dog along so it's comfortable in the woods. Woods can be scary for a young dog. I mean, they can't see you when there's ferns or, or hazel brush, you know, up to your armpits when you're starting to do summer, summer looks and summer training and scouting. I just keep building their confidence. What I call the puppy season, which for me, if I'm getting a dog at the that's born in the fourth quarter or the first quarter can be anywhere from seven to 10, 12 months old that first season, I have no rules. I want that dog simply to learn where birds live. And I do what I call influence handling. So the worst thing you can have in a grouse dog is a yo-yo, right? A dog that runs straight out and straight back, straight out and straight back. That's not going to work for me. That's not, that's, that's just not acceptable. I'll do a lot of edge work where I use the in command. And I, I actually start teaching that the same way you guys do with like basic baseball, right? So mm-hmm. they all love to retrieve. I use, I give the over command to first base and I, but I say in and I point with my right hand that way in point with my left hand, they go get a bumper. They get praised. Life's great. So that first season though, I, I don't walk a straight line. I try and use my body and the dog still not a hundred percent bold and confident where I can move and it still wants to know where I am. And I use a little whistle out of my mouth, not a real whistle, just a, you know, a quiet, just little mouth whistle, just to let them know where I am. And I don't walk a straight line. So I get the dog starting to work. And that first season, if it's finding birds at 80 yards, I could care less. Right. Cause I wanted to learn where those birds live. I want it that if it runs by a spruce tree and finds a grouse, I believe they start to associate that spruce trees with where grouse live. So now it identifies a spruce tree in the distance or wherever. And I want it working towards that spruce tree. I want to pay an extra attention. I, my brother and I always laugh. We have this species called autumn olive. Do you guys know what that is? I don't know if you have it in New York. Uh, I've never heard of it. So the, the Michigan DNR started planting it for wildlife habitat and food. And it, it's an invasive species, and it's ruined a lot of uh, southern Michigan game lands and stuff. It'll take over a field. But where it grows in the woods, it, the, the natural uh, progression of a forest, the natural aging of a forest will keep it fairly contained. And grouse love the stuff. They just love it. And I'll get a dog that will get out of the truck to hunt an autumn olive run. And that dog will just start getting birdie immediately, even though there's not a bird there. (laughs) And I think it's just simple association, right? I've found 300 grouse in this stuff in my career. It smells right. Here we go. Go into a dogwood patch. All of a sudden the dog's acting birdie. And I'm like, you know, and there's nothing there. It's got to be association. So I really want my flushing dogs to hunt a pattern that is appropriate for the cover, but I don't necessarily want strict quartering. I think it's a waste of effort. I'd rather that dog run from objective to objective. And then I am hard on the whistle stop. Single blast means sit no matter what. And that starts to take some advanced training, what I'll call the summer after the first year you know, where I, I put a clip wing pigeon on a soccer field, that dog starts chasing it. And I got to get that dog to stop. 
Because if I can't get that dog to stop with all that distraction, I'm not going to ever be able to get it to stop on a rough grouse. Do you expect your advanced dogs to sit on a flush? I don't. I've taken a few dogs early in training that had a lot of go-go and then given it back to them. What I've found is the grouse woods naturally steady a dog, right? But a lot of times in the season, if my dog were to sit to the flush, it couldn't see over what it was looking at. I'm right. convinced that they mark a lot on the sound of a thud. Of a thud. I agree. Of a bird, bird hitting the deck. And so I end up with, and my dogs aren't allowed to chase either. So we just seem to develop this partnership where the dog flushes the bird and it might go, it might, it might go five, 10 feet past the mark of the flush. And then it comes up head up looking, right? Mm-hmm. Because there might be more birds in front of it. And if it's chasing that bird, but the grouse cover doesn't allow a chase, like you'd be able to chase a pheasant across the CRP field. Right. You know, it's more, the cover's thick. And if, and if, and so that's, we just seem to get to that understanding. And then in the summer, I'll hit the whistle sit after they flush them. You know what I mean? So I can stop them on that. And they just, and we just seem to build a bond at some point about what's acceptable and what's not. In terms yeah. of chasing a flushed bird. And and I could, you know, you could be cringing, Bob, at what I just told you. Um, uh, no, no, I'm not. So I, what I'm trying to picture, though, is, like, there's a little bit of leeway. Like, when I blow a whistle, or, like, I'm assuming you're not blowing a whistle. You're just doing your one blast from your mouth, correct? No, I use a I use a whistle to stop the dog. I use okay. my mouth little whistle to just let them know where I am. I'm with you. Okay. Because I'll hunt my dogs at 40, 50, 60 yards. Yep. Um, and then if I see them get birdie, or then I'll sit them on a whistle sit, and then I'll start moving up, and I'll try and pick the escape route. I'll try and find my lane. You know, okay. there's always natural lanes in the woods. What's going to give me the best opportunity – to, you know, be able to swing a shotgun and see clearly to be able to shoot that bird? Or do okay. I need to get out to the edge because I think that bird's going to go in? My The favorite pattern I have of my dogs is a C pattern. So if I'm walking an edge, let's say I'm walking a logging road, and and it's there's really good cover in a ditch, right? There's thorn apples in that ditch maybe, and there's it's just the, the lights hit that ditch, and it's, and, and it's made the cover thicker there. And that's why they're on the edge. It's the thickest cover typically. And she run, you know, she goes in and runs a C. Well, what she's doing is she's getting around the outside of a lot of those birds. And grouse don't like to fly. They'd rather run than fly. And dogs that learn how to keep birds on the ground are the birds you can kill. Birds that just take flight, you don't have a chance at them. You know, and, and that's just the bird. I, I've also learned in grouse hunting to kill the ones you can kill and don't worry about the rest. You know, just focus on, on the ones you can you can kill and the ones that, that want to play. And, and weather dictates a lot of – weather and cover dictate how well they hold. Some days they don't hold at all. So, you know, some days the ducks won't get within 50 yards of you. You know, yeah. it's just they're, – they're wild birds. So, so that C pattern is just incredible when you're hunting an edge. And then if I'm, if I'm in a, if I'm in a, 
a rich stem stem density type cover, you know, more of a, I'm trying to think of the word, you know, just a big cut, like it's early in the season. I just, I want that dog out roaming in front of me, going to every little thick patch that's in there. Or maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a little opening and there's a bunch of blackberry and raspberry growing in it or, and they might not even be feeding in it. They're just in it because no hawks flying through that raspberry tangle. Right. All right. So let me slow you down. I want to sure. back up to the whistle and just hit that for a second for training and thought process. Yep. Um, so what you're, what I'm envisioning, right, is you're walking through the woods and your dog's getting birdie. You blow a whistle. Dog yep. sit. Dog sits. Correct. Okay. So that's why you were in the soccer field with a wing clip pigeon. Cause that's extremely exciting. That's in your flush. If you will, they're chasing a bird and you want to be able to sit. Now you got it. Here's, here's my question. And, and like, let's discuss this is like, you're watching your dog's body language, super firm on that sit. They sit. That is to some degree a point, correct? Yes, it is. And, and one trick, if people are going to do this, is when your dog is young, don't remote release it. Right. Um, which is what I want to do. You have to get up next to that dog and release it, which might cost me some grouse, but it's going to kill me a lot of grouse when that dog's four. Right. Um, so, and then so again, let me slow you down, though. Yep. So let's, let that Because that's a phenomenal point, right? Because on the other hand, you were talking about, now I got my dog on a sit, I got to find the kill lane. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning of this training, you're more worried about working that dog, going to the dog, praising for sitting, and then flushing, hopefully shooting a grouse. Whereas an advanced dog, you're going to remote release it yes. and be in your kill zone. Exactly. I'm with you. Now the, reward, I- the reward for sitting is hopefully a retrieve. And then they yeah. start to learn if I, if he, you know, if he breaks before he says, okay, if I break before he says, okay, I don't get a retrieve. I really like possessive dogs, mm-hmm. dogs that want something in their mouth all the time because they, they seem like you can really use that aspect to get them to do what you want. Yeah. Without now, a lot of force. hundred percent follow you now. hundred percent follow you now. So, I think that's so you you really are almost you're reading that dog to then not develop a point but be like all right this this sucker's birdie it's intensifying blow the whistle let me get in my kill position which I want to touch on real quick um and then and then release the dog and get ready now how it. how do you determine a kill zone like what are you looking for as you're maneuvering through this thick shit of grouse woods, what are you trying to look at? Just through experience and seeing the number of flushes that I've, I've seen and experienced, you start to, you start to learn their patterns and different types of cover and different times of the year about what their escape route is. So maybe there's a cedar swamp to my right. Well, if I've got a birdie dog, I better, I better be on the right side of that dog because that bird's going to that cedar swamp seven out of 10 times. Okay. Can you explain you know why I mean? though? Because that's where it doesn't get eaten. 
that's where that's its natural escape from predators right yeah cedar swamps are miserable at least where in the areas i go so that bird wants to go there they always love to go to pine trees if there's pine trees around swamps that's where they want to go interesting and and here's another here's another thing I've, i've i've learned about flushing dogs a grouse behaves completely different when a when a when a dog is flushing it than when a human's flushing it because it's now trying it's now worried about the dog and not me where when you walk in front of a point or you've got a boot polishing flushing dog those birds want to go away from you low straight and hard those that's the worst shot in the world to try and kill low hard away where i want my dogs pushing birds to the sky up up 45 50 degree angles up and when that bird's just worried about the dog and not the gunner flushing it it's now trying to escape the dog and they're more liable to make mistakes which allows me to kill them whereas when you walk in front of a point with a pointing dog that bird's solar focus is now on you and trying to escape you that's why the really good pointing dog guys like to try and pinch the bird between you and it I want my dog to keep that grouse on the ground until we force it into um, making a mistake. That might be we're forcing it out of a cover over a field. We're forcing it, you know, into an opening. We're forcing it, you know, over a road. We're trying to push that bird almost like block and drive pheasant hunting to a degree. You know, if, if that makes sense, I'm trying to angle that bird to where I want it. And my best my best, my 15 year old dog had some kind of wild ability to keep him on the ground until we pushed him into a stump, into a hard edge, you know, and, and, and she, she, she wouldn't lose him, but she, she kept her distance right until, until we had it pinched. I'm always looking to pinch birds. That's really, really interesting. And, and I, I don't know, it just makes sense. That's very logical. Why do you think, it's almost taboo that people like don't really use flushing dogs then. I think the number of flushing dogs being used is growing, especially with the English cocker craze that's going on right now. Um, I think that because grouse hunting is really steeped in huge tradition and, and, and every book, there is not a single book ever that I've ever found that's been written about, somebody that's a dedicated grouse hunter over flushing dogs. I, I think uh, Jim Fergus kind of wrote one, the rough shooting dog, but there's no manuals. There's no training manuals. There's hundreds of training manuals on how to develop a, an English setter, an English pointer, a German short hair, a Brittany into a grouse dog. I've never read or found a manual about how to go about training a, a, an upland retriever or an upland spaniel specifically for rough grouse hunting. And so I think it's tradition. And here's the other thing. When a dog goes on point, it's really magical. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It's really magical. The problem I have is I, you know, the best grouse dogs I've ever hunted over get like 60% of them pointed. Right. You know, so, Horses for courses. 
<laughs> no, but I, 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 that's my guess is it's just tradition. It's what everybody's ever had. And you know, Rick I, and I have taken a, Rick and I have taken a ton of abuse. I mean, we've been called every name in the book because uh, no people don't believe that you can be successful hunting over over flushing dogs to the level we've done it. Yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't make like I, to those people. I'd tell them to go pound salt. Like, oh yeah, I, you know, a to me, a good hunting dog who's been taught, trained, and exposed to real hunting scenarios is going to do what it's it's going to do. Like, sure, it's going to find birds. Now, what I I do find interesting is, you know, that old dog of yours that has been so schooled by the game that. It knows the distance. It know it's like a good pointing dog knows to respect the bird. Right. And so that I'm assuming watching that dog, I I'm watching in my brain, my imagination, your dog creeping in and then backing off and creeping in and backing off just to give that bird space to do its thing. I wouldn't say there's it's ever creep off, but if you've ever watched a rough grouse run, like run down a road. I would say that there's a there's a certain level of scent that the best grouse dogs I've hunted over, no matter the breed, pointing, flushing, they they know where that sweet spot of scent is, where it's not too weak and not too strong. Hmm. Does that does that make sense? And so they they they've kept that distance, right? Mm-hmm. The scent cone. The scent cone, and they know, and that scent cone's stronger the closer you get to the bird and it's weaker the further away you get from it and right. they know what that they know where the sweet spot is in that scent cone that's what that old dog of mine did right uh, yeah i i 100 agree and, and understand what you're saying so my point is uh that dog over time and experience has learned that yes. sweet spot Correct. and then keep pushing that bird to a certain extent to where now it's time to move in and actually get the flush. You got it. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Fritz, you do you have it. videos? Uh, you had mentioned. Well, so for, you have a great YouTube channel, but do you have videos specifically of your old dog doing that? Yeah. Do you remember which ones, or maybe we could follow? I don't up know. On it? I mean, they're all such mashups of clips and everything. Uh, that's true. But yeah. you know, there is a video of of her daughter May where I think it's titled I'm not holding up my end of the bargain where it's kind of a snowy day okay. and she's running that, she's running that sea pattern and there's birds just boiling off this edge over this road. And I can't buy one to save my life. And, and guys, I shoot about 70 to 75% on rough grouse Jesus. and, 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 you know, and, and that sounds like a brag, but also to qualify that, if I pull the trigger, I expect it to fall out of the sky. So I don't take chances. You know what I mean? If Whatever the instinct in my brain says, that one. There's more birds every season that I go, man, probably should have shot at that one. Then there are birds where, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I sent a Hail Mary at it. I just don't send Hail Marys at it. Yeah. And my dogs are pretty pretty good crippled dogs. Well, we get along well then. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. I'm going to have to find that video you were talking about. Um, oh, I, I can send it to you, too, if it, depending on where it is. I, uh, I'm i interested. You had mentioned weather and how 
it just plays in so much in terms of what they're eating, where they're spending their time, all that right. good stuff. Um, I'd be interested in your perspective on like now. So we're, we're kind of getting toward the end of season. There's a ton of snow on the ground. It's cold. If you're looking for grouse, what would you suggest people do? Well, I would have to go back to December because all of the upper Great Lakes grouse season's not over. I, or uh, grouse season's over. But when there's snow on the ground in December, I am very, very focused on conifers and or I'm focused on water. Um, swamps are warmer than uh, hardwood uplands, but they have to be adjacent to the budding trees where, you know, because uh, almost 100% of the birds diet when there's snow on the ground is buds and trees that they bud out of. So what is their pattern? Where are they roosting? They're going to roost overnight. They're going to feed right before dawn. Then they're going to go back to roost Then they're and digest their food. And then they might go, depending if it's a nice warm winter day, they'll get more active and they'll go out and loaf. Right. So what's the loafing cover now? That's when you want to target them in the winter. And then again, the last two hours of the day, you want to target them when they're going between when they're moving between the feeding area and their roosting area. So a lot of times what I see is, okay, um, here's a 20 acre linear cut. And on the other side of it is a bunch of male or, or a bunch of mature beech trees or a bunch of ironwood or a bunch of aspen, they're going to, they're going to travel. And then there's a swamp, right? A cedar swamp where they roost sometime mid afternoon. They're going to travel from that cedar swamp on foot. They prefer to be on foot. They're going to travel through that linear cut to that. And they're doing, they're going through the stem density because that's where they're protected from avian predators. Right. And then they're going to go and they're going to hop up in that tree and they're going to eat a bunch of buds as fast as they can. They're going to hop back down a half an hour before dark and they're going to walk back till they can fly up into the roost tree for the night. So if I was targeting December grouse or February grouse in New York, because I think your guys' season's still open. Oh, yeah. I went this morning for an hour. I'd be really focused on what time of the day they're going to they're they're active and typically this time of the year the eat that time of the day is going to be the last hour of daylight and about three hours before daylight perfect i'm going to try and find them in their transitional transition you know the transitional cover that protects them that they're moving from the roost to their their bud trees yeah well that's helpful if you don't have snow on the ground, if it's like a super mild winter or you're in Appalachia or something, I mean, I haven't hunted any of that. I'd assume it's just like November. It's all about food, water, and stem density. Yeah. You know, if you can, I, I, in December, when I used to hunt a ton in December, when I hunted a lot in December, I always tried to be adjacent to moving water. For some reason, they migrate to like rivers, creeks, ditches in, in December. I, I don't know if it's warmer in that river valley. I don't know if they if it's the brush that grows along rivers, if it's the light that opens them up. I don't know, but I would spend so much time 
hunting the, the, the most stem density I could find around water. It's interesting. Um, do you have a bird count? What do you mean by a bird count? Like, uh, you mentioned your, your dog has had how many birds? Yeah. Uh, 3,500. Yeah. Which is an insane amount. But do you have like a personal count? Do you keep like a record book for yourself in terms of different yeah, seasons and I, stuff? Yep, I do. So I, I, I've had one since 2003. Wow. And, and so I write down every hunt. I write down number of birds moved, the area I was hunting, number of shots I took, and the number of kills, and then sometimes, you know, notes if something special or different yeah. happened, you know. You... Uh, we hunt about, I have about 200 covers in the northern lower peninsula. Do you hunt gems I, ever? I don't know. I don't hunt them because they're over hunted. Hmm. What the, what's, I... ama- what's amazing about gems though, or what I will tell you about gems, I'm all on board with it. Uh, I, I've been a chapter president of the Rough Grouse Society for a long time. I think they're phenomenal. Um, they really will teach a new grouse hunter, though, what kind of habitat to look for. You, you so, know what I mean? They are intensely managed. It is prime habitat, typically. Right. And 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 they will they will teach a hunter that. So I I hunted one. I I went to Michigan for a wedding, uh, probably a year and a half ago now, and. Uh, and I would have agree with you. It's like, well, we can all Google, and then you know, some New Yorker comes in. It's like, oh, grouse hunting in Michigan. They've got these things called grouse enhanced management areas. Of course, right. they're going there. So I could totally understand how they get over hunted and whatever. But, um, and that'll yeah. slow down as they continue to develop more and expand them. You know what I mean? Which will spread the pressure out, but it's a pretty new program and I'm all for it. I agree. I mean, it's not a bad thing. No, no, No. not at all. So let's get a little bit into your early development into this. You, You said you were a lab guy through and through from childhood. What was the, do you, can you tell the story of, Hunting with your first lab for grouse. What was that like? Yeah. My parents have a, a a cottage on a northern Michigan trout stream, and uh, I got home from guiding uh, in Alaska in the summer, being a big fisherman. And uh, I mean, talk about a great job for a college kid. Yeah. Probably the hardest work I've ever done in my life in the summer, but long days and my girlfriend dumped me. So I got a dog. It's a good life uh, choice. Yep. And, uh, and so we were, you know, we were hunting pheasants and stuff. And then I'd always flushed a lot of grouse along rivers when I was steelhead and salmon fishing. And so I just started going back to those areas and and a buddy and I, we would just drive up North and start, start hunting where we saw, um, where we saw grouse when we were fishing. We simply learned through boot leather, but that first dog's name was Harry. And, and as a caution, he choked to death on a rawhide bone. Mm. But he was, um, he was, you know, a seasoned pheasant dog. I'd shot a number of pheasants over him. So his search was fine. 
and we just went grouse hunting and I remember I missed a lot. Right. I mean, I missed a lot of them. So does Kevin. <laughs> and yeah, I, you know, I, I, I never became a proficient shot until I really started shooting a lot of sporting clays. I got my gun fit. I took, you know, I took some shooting lessons. I've always been a pretty good athlete, a low single digit handicapper, you know, and I really practiced my shooting too. And then I think the most important thing though, is once you've seen enough flushes, they, they start to slow down Yeah, and you also learn where to be and how, but that first dog, that first dog, uh, I just remember walking, you know, walking rivers and him flushing them. And I, I do remember a day I killed three in this spot I we called the horseshoe, which was an old, you know, the river, however many hundreds, thousands of years ago, it was an old oxbow in the river, right? Where there was a bunch of great alder and brush and stuff growing down there. And I killed three one day and I thought I was a hero. I mean, you I are. literally thought I was a hero. Some would call you a commander. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was and that thing was so full of that, that 25 acres was so full of grouse that day at December day. And, and I must, I probably went through 20 shells to get my three and I was, and I'm still amazed to this day. Every time I knock one out of the air, like, I'm just like, how do you ever kill these things? No. Yeah. You know, do you eat them? Yeah, we don't eat a lot of chicken at my house. Yeah, that sounds awesome. What's your favorite way to cook them? Um, my favorite way or the kids' favorite way? The kids really like them um, breaded and deep fried. And I guess if I had to pick a way to go about it, that's a pretty good way to go. But I like to pound them a little bit thin and, and blacken them with a little bit of Cajun seasoning. Um, that's my favorite way. I do a lot of appetizers when I entertain with them. Um, I've done grouse burgers. Really? Um, yep. I do a lot of grouse chili, the grouse. So when I clean my birds, they get, they get organized in bags as, um, they get written down chili. They get written down, uh, family and they get written down guests. That's how I label them, you know? So the most shot up ones are the chili and the, and or the burger birds and then the the middle set the ones that you know i might have had to pull a few feathers out of or or you know they got some blood in them that's the ones my kids and i eat and then when we have guests i have those really beautiful ones that you know you headshot or broke a wing and you know they're, they 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 look like you know they're chicken you buy in the store right yeah, yeah. that's awesome that's but really cool i like you know with any wild game you can't overcook it like hot fast and wet um, you know, just, just so there's no pink in them, just so there's no pink in them. Um, do you go on the grill? Yeah, I do do them on the grill, um, in the summer at the cottage. Yeah. Yeah. Real hot, yep. real fast. And, and, and I like to soak them in, you know, some kind of acidity, you know, I like to soak them in, in, Orange juice is my favorite, to be honest with you. Soak them in orange juice and a little liquid smoke for like three hours. And then on that grill, they go hot and fast. And then I try and rest them. I also age all my birds. Really? So I, I've done some reading on that, and I want to try it this upcoming season uh, as grouse hunting's definitely winding down here. 
Um, but I want to try that this upcoming season because I've heard that it just makes such a big difference. But what do you I, do? You, well, you do it. So you know, how do you do it? Well, I have a fridge in my barn that I call the um, that my wife refers to as the the spawn and game fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and so I uh, I hang them by the head, never hang them by the feet because if you hang them by the feet, the guts are dropping into the cavity. And if I gut shoot a bird, I I always gut it. And then I, I hang them from a rack in that fridge in the early season. And then later in the year, I, I hang them from, I hang them outside. Like I hang them on the side of a dog kennel or I hang them on the sconce outside my garage. If you go to my Instagram page, you can see the picture where I told, I think I said my wife had done a really good job decorating for Halloween, <laughs> you know, and I got a, I got a leash of grouse hanging from the sconce outside where they can get some airflow. Yeah. But typically two to three days is about the number I go. I know some guys go longer, but just, you know, if, if you've ever cleaned a fresh shot bird, it's hard. There's a lot of blood in that meat still and everything. And I just, I, I hang them, let them cool off, let them hang for a few days. And it is so much better. So much better. I'll have to try that. Have you done it with ducks and things like that? I do. I do it with all the winged birds I shoot. I'll hang ducks for a week. Really? They're hey hard guys. Duck. Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I couldn't hear anything past you said fast, hot, and wet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Go keep going. Keep going. Yeah. No, I hang my ducks. Yeah. Um, I hang them for like a week. Why? You know, is because that, it's hard you... to gut shoot a. It's hard to gut shoot a duck. And I think it's I think I think it's way better. Like like I can I can convince my kids that duck is steak, you know, because you can cook it medium rare. Oh yeah. You know, so they they don't know the difference. But eat a duck the same day you shoot it, and then eat a duck you've hung in thirty five degree weather for five days, and tell me there's not a massive difference. Yeah, I'll hear all the driver. All the diver ducks I shoot, guys, end up as sausage, by the way. I mean, I'm talking about mallards and wood ducks and teal. Right. Um, you know, the, 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 the mystery meat pile that goes to the processor every January. <laughs> and that comes out good? Comes out amazing. Really? I mean, if I'm suited, I'm going to eat it, right? That's why I don't like shoot. Well, woodcock aren't real challenging, but that's another reason is I'd rather eat duck than, than woodcock. I think woodcock's delicious, but I, we, I mean, I guess our diver ducks usually turn into, uh, you know, for the dogs in the field, throwing marks and stuff like that. No, they don't. I eat every single one. The only ones we don't eat are old squaw, that or scoters. Those are the only ones I haven't eaten. Redhead, bluebill, golden eye, eat all of them. You're telling me and, that when we shoot a merganser, it doesn't okay. go in the freezer. <laughs> First of all, that's not a sea duck. I didn't say sea duck. I said diver. Still not a diver. Uh, well, okay. Whatever. A Moral nasty of the story, ass bird. Don't shoot mergs, right? Unless you gotta fill out a limit, but <laughs> <laughs> you need a hero shot on the tailgate. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Um, I'll be the first yeah. one to admit I've got our hooded merganser mouth. <laughs> That's awesome. Hell yeah. Uh Fritz, what kind yeah. of gun do you like to shoot? Oh, long story. <laughs> I'm a heathen, right? So I, for years I shot a Rosini over under 
uh, 12 and 20 gauge. And uh, I, my brother says to me one day at the end of camp, he says, uh, let's take the riot rifles out. Cause when, you, you know, my dad was a Brownie and a five guy. Right. So mm-hmm. we always wanted auto loaders is when we were kids and growing up, that's what big R shot. And uh, so I got, I got originally, I got a uh, Beretta 390 gold mallard. There's a gift from my grandmother. When I graduated college, she gave me some money to buy a gun. And uh, I hunted pheasants with that gun. I still shoot ducks with it and a little bit of sporting clays. But then I bought, before I got married, my dad said, uh, hey, uh, I know you don't have a ton of money, but if you're thinking about making a purchase, you might want to do it before you get married. <laughs> so Good I life bought choice. a six-pound, uh, six six-and-three-quarter-pound Rosini over-under, 12-gauge, and had it fitted to me, and uh, I shot that for years. Um, and then I bought a 20 gauge to match it. And I shot that at times, but, uh, I had won a 20 gauge, uh, AL 391 and my brother had a 20 gauge that he'd found somewhere. And one day he just says to me, we ought to take the riot rifles out tonight. I said, all right. And we went for a walk and we killed nine grouse and I was five for five with it. And I got online and my primary grouse gun to this day. And so that got me back on the autoloader thing. And I've probably been hunting with an autoloader for five or six years now, but the primary gun I shoot is a Beretta A400 light. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't they didn't import a lot of them that didn't have real funky foreign stocks, but I got one. It's six and a half pounds, 28 inch barrel autoloader. Hmm. And it just fits me. And it's not that I have three or four shells because I can count on two hands the number of grouse I've killed on the third shell. It just simply fits me. And that is vitally important in grouse hunting is proper gun fit. So I, I actually really want to hammer on that. And I want to talk about the, the earlier where you said practice. Um, talk about gun fit. Talk about that kind of thing where like I, I have a gun I've talked about too many times on the podcast where I know when I throw it up, I kill and, and right. not everyone, but it's just so confident and comfortable and smooth that I don't like, I've got other guns. I love shooting them, but I just suck compared so to, I, I, I can switch and boom, I'm killing. So I've been measured. And so I have different recoil pads based on what I'm wearing. So I can change the link of link of pull based on how much clothes I have on. And um, a a good buddy of mine is a world renowned gunsmith named Del Whitman. And I got fit by Brian Belinsky out of field sport originally. And, and then Del now works on all my guns and, and changes them, you know, so we have, uh, so I have threaded screws, so I'm not ruining my wood all the time. So I can change those recoil pads. But gun fit is vitally important that because if you're looking at your barrel, you don't have a chance. It's got to be hard focused on the bird all the time. Mm-hmm. And and it's got to be instinctive. And, and the first place to start is to get a professional fitting. And then you can start to tinker. So I want 70% of my pattern at 16 yards above above the dot, so to speak, on a on a patterning board. 
because I'm shooting at birds that are rising. And I also like to float the bird a hair. So my gun's probably, you know, my gun's, my, my gun's actually, if I rifle look down it, it's probably pointed at a grouse's feet, but I know my pattern is going to be high. Mm-hmm. And I, I shoot instinctive. I never calculate lead. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing that, you know, they always say move, mount, bang. And the first, the first move in the grouse woods is it naturally makes you move. You, you know, you can't, I see a lot of guys at the ski field, they yell pull. And the first thing they do is they bring the gun to their face. Then they move their body. You need to move your body and then the gun's got to come to your face, but the gun's got to come to your face. So it's, so your dominant eye is straight down, straight down the rib, you know, cause if you, if your gun is off, what, what did Dell tell me? An eighth of an inch or a sixteenth of an inch at cast and drop, it's up a foot at 16 yards. You don't even have a chance. Say um, that one more time. If your gun is off, it's either a sixteenth of an inch at cast at face. And I'm talking cast at face, also the drop too, not just not just the you know, a hockey stick's got a bend in it, right? Well, mm-hmm. well, your gun stock's got some bend in it, so it moves it from the shoulder pocket in line with your eye. And so that's the cast. So if it's off a sixteenth or an inch, I think, or a sixteenth or an eighth, your your pattern is off a foot at 16 yards. It's got, it's an eighth. If, you're, if your cast is not off an eighth of an inch one way or the other, then your pattern's a foot off at 16 yards. So... To me, what I'm hearing is mounting your gun and and getting it to your cheek and getting down on your target and having that be muscle memory where you're not accidentally getting it on your shoulder and not your shoulder blade. And, you know, your mounting has to be super smooth. Correct. And and, and so I mount the gun to my face. Mm -hmm. I don't mount it to my shoulder. The first the first contact point. I feel is into the bottom of my cheekbone. And then I don't have any gun stock sticking above. You guys should see me right now. I've got my hand on my right shoulder. Like, you know, you could, like we're on some video, but there's then the, you know, then the gun, the whole butt, the whole recoil pad is right in the pocket of my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I don't have any gun proud above, above my, my shoulder, you know, if you looked at me mounting a gun from behind, you couldn't see any of the, any of the recoil pad anywhere. Right. All right. And then I adjust for the amount of clothing I have on shorter length of pull for more clothing, longer length of pull for less clothing. So what's by your, that I'm talking a 16th and an eighth of an inch. So what's your advice for someone like Kevin who sucks at shooting? Go get, pick a gun. Yeah. Go get a prof- go get it professionally fit. That's the huge deal with auto loaders right now are those shims. You don't have to, you know, my my over unders. I've had to have hot oil bent. So go get a professional fitting. Spend the money. Where could you go and get something done like that? Well, there's 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 fitters all all over the place. You just need to Google like who's closest to you and yeah, schedule a professional fitting with them. And then I suggest you shoot. Hunter's clays. I like Hunter's clays. I like it more than skeet. What I mean by Hunter's clays are, you know, fairly true targets that not looping, float, you know, not tricked up sporting clays course. 
I don't care if they're fast, you know, or, or even at 40 or 50 yards, but going away birds, crossers, incomers, not droppers, loopers, rabbits. I mean, sure, some rabbits are fine, but any shooting is going to benefit you and make sure that when you do it, that you that you have good form to build that muscle memory when you're in when you're in the the tangles and embracing the suck that is the grouse woods that it just starts to become a natural reflect uh re, re, i'm trying to say reflective but i'm trying i'm thinking of another word a, a natural reaction you know that your gun just finds its way home yeah when i miss typically i'm i'm peaking like my head comes up mm-hmm my face comes off the stock. And then I think your equipment is vitally important if you want to kill a lot of grouse. Absolutely. You know, I've spent a lot of time on my equipment, you know, and, and that's a fun part of the sport too, is trying to get it dialed in. But then shoot, shoot sporting clays, gun down. And, and oh, don't yeah. mount your gun. Don't mount your gun until you've seen the, see the bird. That's what I tell myself when I shoot sporting clays. Don't mount till you've seen it. Move, mount, bang. And the number one mistake I see in the grouse woods is everybody shoots too fast. They 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 don't swing the gun. They just try and poke shoot. That's never going to work. That bird's moving. Even moving away from you, it's elevating higher or lower depending on the cover. I mean, it's flying through a jungle. Right. It can't fly a straight line. Take your time a little bit. Take your time. It can't outfly 1,200 feet per second. Very and cool. if you're hunting with a retriever and you don't kill a clean, your dog should come up with it. I mean, I hope so. If they don't, they got to find a new home. My house. <laughs> They're walking home. <laughs> That's so, absolutely cool, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. hey, listen, we've, we've had an awesome time. Do me a favor. Tell sure. everybody a little bit of like where they can find you um, if they want to reach out and talk flushing dogs with you and grouse, like where can they get you? Cause tons of great information. I feel like we didn't even dive into the dogs as much as we originally thought, but do you want, do you want to spend 10 minutes on the dog or not? Cause I, yeah, I can tell yeah, this stuff all the time. All right, go for it. Yeah, go. I mean, let it rip. Like I know you're a lab guy. I know you grouse hunt with them, but right. maybe certain characteristics when you're well, picking a, a lab for it, I, I don't know. Go for it. Just let it we, ride. We've somehow we've lucked into these 45 to 50 pound dogs, our whole career. And they're more heat tolerant. They last longer. They, you know, that they, they don't take the pounding and the grouse woods are an obstacle course, right? So they're, they're fleet of foot and agile. I want free safeties more than I want linebackers. And, we, our dogs are bred, I would say 70% American field trial champion type stuff mixed with maybe a little calmer hunt test type breeding. And then I like to see a good old fashioned meat dog in there every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had one litter. My brother's male, who we've bred a number of times, is out of uh, two toes out the door, Deuce. I don't know if you guys remember that dog. I don't. Um, it was a it was a, a sprit out of the woods times uh, scans in the nick of time kind of line. Yeah, yeah, that's the stuff I like. Code blue, scans in the nick of time, 
whatever reason that line has produced fairly consistent smaller dogs um especially if it's been bred to some of the kind of the south dakota pheasant stuff or the minnesota pheasant stuff um i'd really like to get back into breeding dogs i just don't have the time right now yeah so but confirmation is number one for me the dog's got to be put together really well can't be out at the elbows you know, I want, I don't want too much neck. I don't want too little a neck. Um, it's hard to get a good looking 50 pound lab though. I'm sure you guys have experienced that. Yeah. So, you know, life's too short to hunt with an ugly dog or an <laughs> ugly gun or be married to an ugly woman, but somehow I end up with kind of ugly dogs. <laughs> um, and you know, and, and so that's what we really look for. And it's not always easy to find what I'm seeing. I don't know what you guys have seen. I've it's easier and easier to find a 50 pound dog right now than it used to be. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so, but I would like to get back to trying to, I, we collected, uh, that dog, that dog, uh, my 15 year old, her son, we collected him. Cause if I could clone one, that's what I would clone. Gotcha. Um, and, well, you'll, have, and, you'll have to send us a picture so that we can put it up on like our, our page, a couple of good, good pictures okay. of dogs. But, um, it's actually funny because our my cruise, she's a master hunter and great great dog. We just bred her again. She's out of Esprit's Power Play, who's mm-hmm. son of out of the woods. So my dog, our line's grandfather is Power Play's brother. Gotcha. There was a guy here in Michigan that had that dog, um, but there's a fair amount of that line running around Michigan, so. Um, I've got a dog, right? My four-year-old dog is out of, uh, Ruckus, Susan Bledsoe's dog. Okay. Bred back to this kind of line and, and she's really turned into a nice dog, but I was hoping to be able to breed her, but she's, she's not confirmationally exactly what I want. So I won't breed her. Gotcha. Um, you know, and, you know, we just, we look for, we look for small, independent, and my dogs are really hunting on the ragged edge of out of control. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe as I age, I'll start to look for something a little slower or I'll put more classic, you know, handling controls on them, but I want them on the absolute ragged edge. And again, I just subscribe to that theory that, you know, if they blow one up and it flies the other direction, that's wild bird hunting. You know, I had one, I had one day earlier this year, it seems like I'm hunting this edge and I'm moving birds and the birds are all flying inside. So I move inside and then then they're all flying out across the open field and I move out there and I could just never get on the right side of them, you know, but that's wild bird hunting. That's right. That's what drives me to keep coming back too. If anything, we need to make a t-shirt, Fritz Heller. Hot, hot, wet, and fast, baby. <laughs> that's how you want to. That's how you want to marry, too, right? I guess so. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, you, you two gentlemen, are the only ones that made that mistake. Jesus, this one's going off the rails. I know. <laughs> I, I love it though. Does, kind of hope Carrie what? doesn't listen to this one. Yeah, I, I'm married to a Carrie too. Oh, nice. Hot, wet, and fast. Yep. So, all right. But I, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, they just suit how we go about our business. They also suit, you know, my, they're just so versatile, right? I mean, I can, yeah. 
I, I can, I can, you know, we always take our oldest, most mature dog to the duck blind because we've encouraged so much independence and search. And I have to listen to him whine for 20 minutes and correct them with the collar. But then they settle right in like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing today. You know what I mean? And yeah, you got to sit there and you can't move until I tell you, you know, in that situation. But they seem to adapt to that. And, and that's just what's so awesome about the breed. They also adapt to the fact that, you know, some days they're sleeping in my truck and some days they're sleeping in their kennels and some days they're sleeping in my kid's bed. Yeah. You know, so. It's a fantastic it, breed. Yeah. I and mean, really, I really there's a there's a line of Labrador with some due diligence for everybody. You know, the yeah. type of dog I have right now in my early forties probably isn't what I'm going to have in my early sixties. I'd agree with that. 100%. So what I like now when I'm 70, I don't think I'll want as much. <laughs> yeah. But so, Hey, hot, wet and fat, man. Right. 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 But you can, you know, to go back to the other question, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram just under Fritz Heller. And then Grass Commander's got a website and there's some old YouTube videos up. And then if you just Google Fritz Heller grouse hunting, some of the articles that they've done, and I've written a few articles, they'll all come up. Okay. Well, dude. I truly enjoyed BSing with you. It, it's been a lot of fun, and your knowledge of the woods, your woodsmanship is spectacular. And the fact that you do it all with a Labrador makes me love it even more. So, Yeah, for- I, re- I really got to tell you guys, I, I, I enjoy your podcast when I'm struggling through my winter cardio workouts at the gym because you guys are lab guys and there's, there's not, a, you know, my friend, Ron Bame, you know, he, he, uh, he makes fun of labs all the time. So, which is ironic considering he owns bloodhounds. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I actually got off the phone with Ron a few days ago and, uh, yeah, he, he busts my chops too for being a lab guy. So there you go. Well, I'll but, yeah. his, his old ass. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I shot around the sporting clays with him earlier this year and uh, talk about a guy that needs a gun fit, but he's just a, yeah, he's just a great guy. He's left-handed shooting a right-handed gun his whole life. Really? Yeah. He's finally getting some guns fit to him. I hooked him up with my buddy Dell. Wow. So, Hey, that'll happen. But anyway, again, anybody that wants to check you out. Yep give it a get again to him it's just it just i'm on fritz it's just fritz heller on facebook and fritz heller 77 on on instagram and uh and then if you just google fritz heller grouse hunting you, you'll find the grouse commander stuff and some of the videos uh, i in the, the did you guys watch the project upland film i don't think i did yeah I'm project, we did a film with project upland last fall and boy that's I'm thrilled to have it. I'm thrilled to do it. Um, when when one of your senses is taken away in the grouse hunting, it becomes a real struggle. And that sense that was taken away was was my hearing. When you have a cameraman like feet behind you, mm. you you can't hear anymore. That's really I interesting. Don't, I don't run I don't run bells on my dogs, you know. So I I, I listen. Uh, you know, one of the indicators is you know how you know does the the brush is moving 
this way. And then all of a sudden it's moving a lot more. Right. And, and when you take away that being able to hear in the grouse woods, holy moly, it was, we rode the struggle bus and I, and that my dog had, you know, got poked in the eye during the film. It's all on there. Yeah. We'll have to check it out. So if you want to check it out, he's on Facebook, Instagram and project up one has a video with him. Yep. Chris, dude, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Really, hey, no problem, guys. Thanks for all your hard work. Thanks for having uh, given me some entertainment, you know, about Labradors. I learned a lot from uh, your guys' podcast, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great night. See you, buddy. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs, and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.